Hello and welcome to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined by a man who regularly inflicts Arsenal and Borussia Dortmund on himself. It's Lewis Ambrose. Lewis, hello. John, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. I'm really looking forward to chatting to you about the Bundesliga in particular, because we usually talk about Arsenal. But as I say, Lewis is an Arsenal fan who spends most of his time watching the Bundesliga, especially Borussia Dortmund, and he writes about English and German football with an analytical slant. Lewis works for OneFootball, writes for Arsblog, and has his own German football newsletter, which you can find at fussballinenglish.substack.com. And as a subscriber, I can heartily recommend that newsletter. It should come as no surprise that today we're heading to the Bundesliga to cover the ground that gets covered every summer without fail, which is Bayern Munich's dominance. But rather than focusing on the topics that every other outlet will be covering, how does the Bundesliga overcome its stark inequality? We're more interested in the impact that this inequality has on the league's second best team, Borussia Dortmund. But before we begin, as ever, a reminder that one of the best ways for me to build my audience is by word of mouth. So if you like this podcast, do recommend it to friends who you think would enjoy it. Anyway, with that out of the way, it's time to get to Borussia Dortmund and let's start off by contextualising the problem. So, Lewis, it's been 10 seasons now since Bayern didn't win the Bundesliga title. This is the question that everyone's talking about at the moment. So let's get it out of the way. What's your take on the reason for Bayern's dominance? I hate to be so obvious, but they've got loads of money, John. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think generally we see, right, like the teams who spend the most money win more often than everybody else and the Bundesliga has a problem where the amount of money that Bayern have compared to everybody else is is enormous. Dortmund have considerably the, the second highest revenue in the league but that comes largely from, from these big money transfers that we see when they take a young player and develop them and then sell them on a couple of years later. We've seen it with the likes of Christian Pulisic and Jadon Sancho and now this summer Erling Haaland. So Dortmund really rely on that as a model. Bayern don't. So you get this situation where Bayern can spend, I think, 70 million on Lucas Hernandez and then not really use him because he didn't adapt very well to German football for a couple of years. And no one really blinks or, or talks about the transfer fee again. So like over the last decade, where they've won 10 league titles in a row, their net spend is about 400 million euros, I think, just on the fees alone. And they pay by far the biggest wages in Germany on top of that as well. I think the next closest clubs you have those sort of financially backed clubs, let's call them, in Germany, the likes of Wolfsburg and, and RB Leipzig, who who spent, I think, in that same decade about two hundred million euros each. And then you've got Dortmund, who have made over a hundred million euros in transfers in that ten year period. So I really think it's it's that simple. That Bayern figure exists alongside as well. A few bargains, that's not to disparage Brian, they know what they're doing. There's a few bargains, there's a few free transfers along the way. So the difference is really being able to spend 50, 60, 70 million on a single player and then not being handcuffed if that player ends up as, as not a huge success, unlike Dortmund, for as obviously the example that everyone uses because they finished second most seasons. That financial dominance has always existed, and it's it's definitely grown more stark over the past 10 years, five, 10 years. I think the difference really is that Bayern are now the richest club and the smartest club in Germany. I think for a long time that wasn't the case. Bayern went down that classic, the same thing we saw everywhere in Europe, that classic 90s route of signing the guy that plays for your rivals, signing for the guy that scored a couple of times against you that season. And obviously, more often than not, you get duds. If you just go down that such a narrow-minded view, Bayern don't do that anymore. I think 2012, the last time Dortmund won the league and and humiliated Bayern in the cup final was the big turning point, really. Bayern haven't lost the league title since then. They lost to Dortmund 5-2 in the cup final, having already lost the league title for the second year running and then lost the Champions League final in their own stadium. And I think... For Bayern as a club, for all of those things to culminate, for all three things to happen in the same year was so embarrassing and and hurtful that they turned around and decided never, ever again. And what we've had since is 10 years of absolute dominance. Yeah, I'm fully on board with everything that you're saying. I just wondered if you think that Dortmund bear any responsibility for this period of dominance from Bayern. Is there anything they could have done differently? There are a lot of things Dortmund could have done differently. I think the one thing that you can't separate from Dortmund over the past 10 years, the way the club went up and has come down again, is obviously the departure of Jurgen Klopp. 
and I think he essentially was impossible to replace. But even so, Dortmund still did a bad job within the realms of possibility of replacing him and moving on as a club. The pressure that's on Dortmund is a strange one because they have to be there every single year. That's the expectation on them. Bayern can have a bad year, but still win the league. Dortmund aren't allowed to have a bad year because they have to be right there just in case Bayern have their bad year. So it's a really complicated relationship between the two clubs and their relative ambitions. I also think you can't separate the last 10 years with what happened 20 years ago and Borussia Dortmund almost ceased to exist as a football club that close to the brink of bankruptcy. And when we talk about the club making 130 million euros in transfers over the past 10 years, it's because of that history that can't be allowed to ever happen again that, that Dortmund take financial risks. Those risks that they took at the start of the century and won a couple of titles off the back of it will never be allowed to happen at the club again. So they'll never roll the dice in a massive way financially thinking hmm, maybe Bayern look weak in a particular summer and this is our time to strike. It's just because of Dortmund's brush with going out of business completely 20 years ago in hell that will just never happen. So I think Dortmund could do better, but I think to hold them to the standard that they should be doing better that in a way that would have meant Bayern wouldn't have won 10 years in a row is probably unfair. It's interesting hearing you talking about the fact that the yardstick for success for Dortmund themselves and the way that everyone else sees the yardstick for success it seemed very very different you mentioned that financial sustainability is an important aspect of the way that the Dortmund board see the function of the club whereas obviously everyone else sees it as the yardstick as being challenging buying for the title and yeah just interested at this point before we get into maybe the minutiae of why that might be the case how important you think that that is for the way that the the club sort of self-assesses in, in many respects. Given that the financial gap exists, I think the club made a mistake in the early part of the last decade when they won the two titles in a row and they and they positioned themselves as the second major club in Germany. That's fair enough. I think it's ambitious to an extent, but it also shows the realistic ceiling to that ambition. I don't think it was ever necessary for Dortmund to position themselves as the non-Bayern Bundesliga team. And I think that that has hamstrung them a bit because now people look at Dortmund and finish in second every single season. And it looks from the outside as a disappointment because we're all sitting there hoping that we don't get the same champion for an 11th and a 12th and a 13th season in a row, which means Dortmund become the only hope, if you like, to to sort of save us from that fate. But Dortmund themselves have positioned themselves there so it's a really tricky one the bar hasn't just been raised over the last 10 years it's been like launched into the air by Bayern when Dortmund last won the league in 2012 under Klopp they set a Bundesliga record for points in a single season with with 81 points Bayern have beaten that record six times in the last nine years and if they win at the weekend and the last game of the season they'll beat it a seventh time if, if they don't beat it it's because they've taken their foot off the gas having already won the title with three or four games to go and then had a few shock results off the back of it. And and that's happened a couple of times in the seasons where they haven't broken that record as well. So we do live in a football environment where the rich and the poor, the gap is growing and growing. But if you look at Dortmund a couple of times in the last 10 years, they would have won the, the league title in Germany any other year in history up until 2012. It feels unfair to say that Dortmund haven't done enough when historically this team at times would have been more than enough to be convincingly German champions. Yeah, I think that sets the the context really well for everything else that we're going to do because it's my suspicion, I'll say suspicion rather than assumption, that actually what what's happening here is that the pressure of being considered the second club in Germany means that maybe Dortmund sometimes don't have as big a picture strategy as they maybe could have. Although having said that, let's just run through the recent history of Dortmund coaches to talk about the particularly the tactical aspects that the club has gone through because it's actually been a relatively stable period for managers over the last few decades. So it's not quite so simple as, as sort of saying that they're flailing around trying to find some sort of approach but it is an interesting group of managers so we'll start with Jurgen Klopp because I do think that that is the the turning point as you suggested and then you you have that 
development from Klopp through Thomas Tuchel, through Peter Bosch. Obviously, that goes in a in a way that is not expected and is, I think, maybe the shortest tenure of the lot. Maybe Peter Stöger gives him a run for his money, but Peter Stöger is obviously a response to Peter Bosch. And then you have Lucien Favre, and then again, when that finally falls to pieces, Edin Terzic comes in for a small period, and now we have the Marco Rosa tenure that we're going through right now. I suppose the criticism of Dortmund could be that there doesn't really seem to have been that much joined up thinking from them regarding managerial appointments, at least at the level of the tactical. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on that list of managers that I've just read out. Is there any thread that connects these managers? (laughs) They speak German. Um, (laughs) I I think that's a non-negotiable for Dortmund when they do consider whoever's going to be the next coach. Other than that, no, not really. I don't think you watch a, a Lucien Favre side and you see something akin to a Thomas Tuchel side and a Peter Bosch side and a young Klopp side as well. So no, I don't think so. I think that Dortmund have over the years and and since Klopp's departure lost their way a little bit. And I, I think you're completely right in terms of an overarching idea. It hasn't been there. It hasn't been obvious from the outside looking in. Well, let's talk about the Jurgen Klopp era at the club. Do you think that the Dortmund signing of Jurgen Klopp was was just a lucky happenstance or do you think that it was a smart signing at the time was there anything about the context of that signing that made you think oh you know Dortmund are doing their due diligence they're thinking carefully about the tactical identity of the team and the club what they want it to be or do you think it was just here's a here's a young coach coming through done well at Mainz playing exciting football let's bring him in and see if he can do anything I actually went back and looked at, at the first press conference Jürgen Klopp did at Dortmund in, in preparation for this. And Hans-Jürgen Watzke turned around and said he fits to the region where football was maybe lived a bit more intensely than in other regions. He stands for offensive and attractive football. And I am certain that the team is going to develop under him. I think that answers your question. I'd, like, I don't think this was an accident. I think if you go through that press conference, if you go through what Klopp said at the time himself... You cannot separate that that far from the Jurgen Klopp of today. So I think Dortmund knew exactly what they were doing. They wanted this high-energy football. They wanted, as you say, a manager who had impressed under Mainz. He'd also, in Germany, become a household name beyond just football fans. During the 2006 World Cup, he was uh, an expert for national television. And I think really added a level of analysis that, that let's say, isn't really common on and certainly on national TV during popular tournaments so obviously that was a world cup held in germany as well so the country was going mad for the tournament and klopp was there front and center as just the coach of Mainz, as an expert for the broadcast the zdf so you knew that he knew what he was doing and what he was talking about and people already had this image of Jürgen klopp not just a, a tactician but as this emotional guy. And that's the part that, that Vatska is getting at when he said that he fits the region that lives the game so intensely. So I think Dortmund knew exactly what they were doing. I think Dortmund were humble enough and had a good enough understanding of their own city, really. Klopp went for an interview at Hamburg as well and turned up in jeans that had holes in and basically was told to get out the door before he'd even done the interview. Hamburg had decided they weren't going to appoint him based on that because of their their own image as a, as a club that they have. And, and we see where that's taken them over the past <laughs> 10 years. Dortmund as a place is a very, in, in the English speaking world, I'd probably compare it to Newcastle as like, it's a one club city it's a working people city and you know that people who go to the stadium at the weekend have worked a week to get the money to be able to just go and enjoy their 90 minutes at the stadium so Dortmund are very rooted in that as a culture and Klopp I think you know you you just start to talk about that and imagine that as a place Klopp fits perfectly as as this roaring guy on the touchline and and screaming at the players and living every moment from the dugout so I think Dortmund knew the tactically the guy they were getting and I also think Dortmund knew the person that they were getting when they went for Jürgen Klopp I don't think they realised that that might put them in trouble trying to replace him seven or eight years down the line. But I don't think necessarily they thought he'd he'd lead them to Bundesliga titles within four years and that he'd take them to a Champions League final. But I think they knew that they were getting one hell of a coach. I haven't actually put this on the running order at any point, but we should talk about the emotional aspect because it's definitely the case that that emotional aspect has maybe hamstrung the, the club later on. 
Lucien Favre always had this as sort of something that was beaten around his brow when whenever he was in games because he wasn't considered to be emotional enough or to have the the strength of personality perhaps that Dortmund expects its managers to have and just maybe at this point it might be good to talk about the impact that that ideal manager has on the way that Dortmund are now. We're going to get on a little bit later to talk about the intensity of football, of the Red Bull system in particular, and, and the maybe slight wane that that approach to football is having in Germany at the moment. And I suppose that ties in quite nicely then with this idea of a sort of gung-ho, I'm not going to use the phrase heavy metal, there you go, I've just done it. But, <laughs> you know, that is the ideal is that they have a manager who looks like he, he can because the criticisms often are and it's not criticism I would ever use but the criticisms often are X, Y or Z manager just wasn't passionate enough for Dortmund on, on the touchline so what's your whole take on the emotional aspect here? For Dortmund in particular I think you have to tie into this situation where realistically Dortmund can't win the league and they're in a bit of a holding pattern I think if fans know that they're unlikely to win the league, but they're also unlikely to finish outside the Champions League places, a lot of tension disappears and it becomes more important than ever to identify and be able to identify with what you're seeing from the players and and from the manager. I think a lot of Dortmund fans genuinely would rather watch a team that punches above their weight to finish seventh and gives absolutely everything. And a few players come to mind from the current squad now, as I say it, than the players who are incredibly talented, but maybe don't always give everything or don't appear to always be giving everything and get you into third or second in the league. I think that means a lot to the people of the city that the football team represents their own rough, ready, hardworking kind of ethic That goes from the manager as well. And I think it's fair to say that managers who are more animated on the touchline and more maybe emotional as well on the touchline, that their teams represent them or mirror them on the pitch as well. And that's why Klopp was was such a perfect fit. And Dortmund definitely have struggled to appoint coaches who can either get that out of the players or show it themselves so that the players have something to mirror. Let's talk a little bit about the tactics of Klopp at Dortmund. Obviously, the big story of Klopp since he arrived at Liverpool is that he's taken his really intense, counter-pressing style of play and he's maybe softened it a little bit. He's added a lot more on the possessional side of the, the game. So Liverpool are, are much more able to control possession than, than perhaps his Dortmund side were. And it's, I think, a real testament to Klopp that he was able to make that tactical evolution in many respects. In terms of the Dortmund side, were Klopp's tactics at the time just perfect for the Bundesliga as it was? I think they were perfect in that aspect and in other aspects as well. I think they was perfect for a bunch of young players. Dortmund had, had come out of the brink of not existing and didn't have any money. So there was a lot of young players. There were a lot of players who maybe. I mean, one of the things Klopp loved to say was against better teams, Dortmund at the time would drag them down to our level and then beat them. And, you know, I think that's such a great encapsulation of the approach, basically. Outrun everybody and squeeze them and force them to make mistakes that maybe technically you wouldn't expect them to make just by making life as difficult and uncomfortable for them as possible. Then you level the playing field against more talented sides, quite simply. So I I think that was perfect for the mentality of the club and the approach of the club, you know, going for young athletic players at the time. And then on top of that, yeah, the Bundesliga was not this pressing, heavy, intense league that we see nowadays. It was still, it's fair to say, like relatively basic tactically, as England was at the time as well. So Klopp came in and suddenly Dortmund won the ball high up the pitch over and over again. And it wasn't really the done thing, not with that level of, of consistency and that level of energy. So the fullbacks, both of them pushed up really high. Schmelzer on one side and Piszczek on the other, which meant the midfield could play really narrow. And you had this kind of wonderful mix in midfield of Sebastian Kell or Sven Bender as, the, as this sort of destroyer type. And then Nuri Shahin and then later Ilkay Gundogan as the silky passer playing at the base of midfield. Then as time went on, they would add more technical players further upfield as well. You know, you went to Mario Goetze breaking into the team and and Shinji Kagawa becoming so, so important. These players who in Germany, they're called needle players because they can find those tight spaces and their close control can sort of see them weave in and out of players. Yeah, I mean, you you said heavy metal before. 
That was an interview in English that Cop gave when he said that for the first time with Sky Sports before a Champions League game, I think. I actually prefer in German, they'll call it full throttle football, which I think is uh, a little less on the nose in terms of imagery. And it really does fit the way that Dortmund played. You know, the, the pitch would be made as wide as possible when they had the ball and then as narrow as possible when they didn't. And the fullbacks would... If the ball was, say, on the on, on Pischek's side, right on the touchline, Schmelzer would be right in the centre of the pitch and, and you've got you know half a pitch outside him completely free and the team would shuffle across, or shuffle so that makes it sound a hell of a lot slower than it was, but the, the, the team would move across if the ball moved across the other side of the pitch. You know, they'd set pressing traps and I don't think anybody in Germany was equipped mentally, physically, technically to handle it at the time. And that's where you saw this enormous rise up the table out of nowhere well let's move on and talk about Thomas Tuchel because it seemed as though Thomas Tuchel was the natural successor to Klopp in a lot of respects how much do you think this was an attempt by Dortmund to make this their style going forward whatever it was that Klopp was doing or do you think it was just again as simple as as saying well Thomas Tuchel succeeded Jurgen Klopp at Mainz and was doing much of the same thing so it's just an obvious fit really like on a tactical level I think it was absolutely the the right fit the right next step. I think Klopp's final season when obviously Dortmund are in the relegation zone in January and then managed to recover and and make it into the Europa League. For me, tactically, the problem was that Klopp lent far too much into what he trusted instead of trying to add something else to, to his game, that development that you mentioned that we've seen at Liverpool. And it's perfectly encapsulated by Dortmund's January that year when they were struggling to do anything in the Bundesliga teams were just sitting back and clearing the ball because they knew that they would get murdered if they tried to try to play out against Dortmund and, and held on to the ball for too long in midfield so Jürgen Klopp decided to go and sign Kevin Kampo from RB Salzburg at the time who was this midfield pressing machine and it felt like instead of dialing back on the pressing and adapting and finding ways to unlock a defence Klopp's idea was to batter the door down with even more pressing and even more intensity. And it felt like he needed that break when he left and before he took the Liverpool job. Thomas Tuchel was was kind of the opposite. I think Tuchel was inspired by Klopp's football to an extent, but much more inspired by Pep Guardiola's football and you know that positional play and speeding the game up only when necessary, but also slowing it down and, and picking teams apart. And so many positional rotations instead of it being fairly obvious where, where Klopp's Dortmund would, would be. The movements from Tuchel's Dortmund where he brought in Julian Weigl that summer and he played at the base of a midfield with Ilkay Gundogan. There was no space anymore for a destroyer. And you had two real ball-playing central midfielders and ahead of them players with incredible movement and technical ability. Henrik Mkhitaryan and Michael Royce and, and Shinji Kaiwa came back. So... It was a much more technical and precise Dortmund side. Maybe it was a bit too much for the fans and for the identity of the club. If this Klopp workmanlike football had sort of resonated so much, then this more delicate Guardiola type Tuchel football didn't. It's a style that I think Tuchel's moved away from himself now as well and become a lot more pragmatic. It's certainly at Chelsea, I think at PSG. Maybe he learned that when you have great players, you don't really have the choice always what you can tell them or or demand from them. So I think Tuchel's changed quite a lot now. Tuchel at Dortmund was, to me, tactically a bit of an idealist. And the Dortmund model of signing these young players and then moving them on, Tuchel's second season, he had Usman Dembele. And obviously he moved at the end of that summer to Barcelona for enormous money. I think when you have those players and you want to play that football there's going to be just an amount of randomness and inconsistency. So after Tuchel's first season, which I think went well on a football level, it didn't go well on a personal level. There was a lot of clashes with backroom staff and with players who had been so used to this buddy arm around the shoulder kind of thing from Jürgen Klopp. And Tuchel arrived, he changed that. He was a bit more dictatorial. And I don't think everybody was comfortable with that. He clashed with Sven Mislintat. He clashed with Aki Vatska. It's too many people to clash with if you're not winning every single game. So Tuchel then, uh, yeah, at the, the end of the second season, I think it was not the football necessarily, but the football wasn't good enough and didn't 
resonate with the fans enough for him to get the support that he would have needed to stay having broken all of those relationships. I suppose you've mentioned this already, but the question has got to be at this point, to what extent did the Jurgen Klopp era actually hamper the club in terms of the ideals of what the fans and the, in fact, the board and the higher ups at the club were were thinking should be the way that the club should play? I think you could look at it from either direction. I think you could say that it hampered them because they wanted to prolong and build from the identity that Jürgen Klopp had laid down for the club. In terms of tactically, this is a club that, yeah, sure, work hard, but there wasn't a tactical identity before Jürgen Klopp. There was a, a club identity, but not one that then expressed itself like so obviously on the pitch. I think that's something that they had to continue. There had to be an identity. I think the Tuchel one was an evolution of that, but given the circumstances, it was imperfect. And I think it's always the horrible, horrible job to succeed the all-time great club legend in charge. I think I think it's basically impossible if we look pretty much everywhere. Nobody ever seems to be able to pull it off. So I think Tuchel on a personal level was too different from Klopp. I wouldn't say on a tactical level. I think if people had had warmed to Thomas Tuchel, if he was, you know, you talk about that emotion on the touchline, which at the time he, he didn't really show much of. He didn't, he wouldn't go to the, to the yellow wall and celebrate after victories the way that Klopp would, for example. If he'd have done some of those things and compromised on himself as a person a little bit more, then I think the fans and the club would have compromised on what you might see as footballing ideals. But I think Tuchel didn't move close enough to what the fans and the club wanted from him as a person for them to buy into his football. Otherwise, I think that they actually would have. That's interesting. Let's move on to talk about the next few hires because the period that follows the the clock Tuchel tenures ends up being a little bit haphazard in the end but obviously it begins with an attempt to go down the same sort of route as Klopp and Tuchel with Peter Bosch but as we know that goes quickly wrong and then I guess in hindsight the Peter Stöger appointment looks crazy um, but it is a I suppose an off-the-cuff solution to the, the Bosch sacking and then we get to Lucien Favre who is maybe another attempt to get back on brand or at least attempting to bring in a manager who is able to steer the ship and, and get Dortmund doing what it was that again the owners and directors wanted from the club what do you make of this period in particular I think this is the period really where when you talk about Dortmund losing their way this was completely it in terms of a footballing identity I think that evolution from Klopp's Dortmund to Tuchel's Dortmund made a lot of sense it was a not completely different it was a, a step forward in terms of possession and keeping the ball and dominating football matches which Klopp's last season showed was absolutely necessary to find solutions to those problems I can see the logic of appointing Peter Bosch and I think it was absolutely right that that he was sacked after just a few months because things had just sort of spiraled out of control completely I think it's incredible that he wasn't sacked immediately after Dortmund had led Schalke 4-0 at home in the derby and and drew that 4-0 and he was given a couple more weeks I think after that in a footballing sense in a philosophy kind of sense he made sense it was that same you know keep the ball sort of thing like Tuchel it was press like Klopp but he showed no ability to adapt and I think it's something that's continued throughout his career when there were obvious flaws with the system when Dortmund were being exposed on the counter-attack he showed no willingness really to to adapt the approach though yeah maybe the odd change in formation but not anything that would actually get the players to approach certain situations in a different way so everybody would press there, there was no sort of screen in front of the defense and Dortmund would lose the ball on the edge of the opposition box and they were playing 4-3-3 and and all three players would go and press and man mark the opposition and it would take one well-placed long ball or two quick passes through that midfield and Dortmund suddenly had a couple of centre-backs who had to cover the last 60 yards of the pitch and it was completely impossible and, and at that point untenable. Peter Stöger is probably the one here where I have most sympathy for them because I think they sacked Peter Bosch, not because they had a replacement but because they just really wanted to sack Peter Bosch and Peter Stoger was available and was almost the opposite like a very boring stoic kind of approach to the game and I think Dortmund at that point of the season were like right we just have to finish in the top four 
and they did and the idea was like the talent will win you most football games if you just make sure you don't concede as many goals as you're leaking with Bodge in charge of the side so it made sense and they got the job done with Stoger. Uh, Lucien Favre was a very interesting choice I see Lucien Favre as I mean we're going away from tactics a bit and more into the psychological but I, I see Lucien Favre as Dortmund and, and Aki Vatska in particular, who was so like personally hurt by the, the breakdown in a relationship with Thomas Tuchel. I saw Favre as a complete response to that. Somebody who won't really rock the boat. Somebody who is a very nice, pleasant man to get along with and will do a good job, not necessarily punch above the weight. And I think that was the problem in the end with Lucien Favre, is that Dortmund were... Definitely a possession side, definitely a more patient side than they've been before. They really weren't much of a pressing team anymore under him. And I think when you have Favre, who also, to his credit, is fits the club philosophy of developing players because I think he's incredible with young players and, and getting the most out of them and, and bringing them to a new level. But when you're Dortmund and you have to punch above your weight to succeed, if we say that second isn't success, you have to beat Bayern Munich away from home or you have to win your Champions League knockout games and I think Favre's football was superb over his time at the club at beating the teams Dortmund should beat but the lack of intensity and the lack of pressing really meant that in those games where they weren't the more talented side or the the side that was naturally going to just dominate possession anyway they found it really, really hard to make life difficult for teams who are as talented or more talented than them. And that obviously puts quite a natural ceiling on how far you can actually take the side. So then you ended up this era with Dortmund compromising on signings. They'd signed some players who Tuchel had wanted in order to sign some players they wanted who Tuchel didn't want. Andre Schürrle comes to mind, he became the, the club's all-time most expensive player when he joined from Wolfsburg. He'd played for Tuchel at Mainz and Tuchel was desperate to sign him, but Dortmund weren't convinced. But Dortmund wanted to sign Mario Goetze back from from Bayern Munich and Tuchel wasn't convinced. So they sort of compromised and signed one, one for you, one for me. You had a few situations like that. And then you had Tuchel and Boj both leaving players out who other managers maybe would have used more regularly. Then you had Favre come in and a similar situation again. And now we get to the present day or the start of this year when Marco Rosa took over a squad that had been half put together by the club, half put together for or by Thomas Tuchel, half put together for or by Peter Bosch or Lucien Favre. And it's all a bit of an entangled mess that's going to take a couple of years to actually sort out, I think. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk about all of these coaches because it does seem that the thread that ties them all together is they've just sort of almost immediately been successful somewhere else. So obviously Peter Bosch has had a good season at Ajax. Peter Stöger was doing well at FC Köln at the time. Um, and, and then, yeah, Lucien Favre had had good, good spells with uh, Gladbach as well. So I just thought that was a, an interesting aside, sort of the, the board were looking around being like, well, this manager's doing well here, so maybe he'll do well for us. But as you say, when you get to the end of that period and it, it feels as though there's been so much upheaval you just end up with a, a messy squad and not really any kind of attempt to be able to talk about a brand of football that the, the club are playing. But let's talk a little bit tactically about Lucien Favre just before we move on, because as you say, Lucien Favre was often criticised for his lack of charisma rather than his tactical astuteness. And I remember the ends of the season under Lucien Favre just getting really wound up by listening to the media just talk about Lucien Favre just isn't a guy for, for Dortmund. And, and obviously that all coming down to the psychological side of things. But as you said, he was a, a fairly smart tactician and he was the sort of darling of the stats guys for a while because he consistently would uh, overachieve his expected goals against. And so I'm interested to hear what you made of him as a tactician. I think Lucien Favre has football teams that play really, really nice football, like really pleasant to watch football. As a fan, I think it can be really frustrating because you don't get this necessarily this high intensity pressing kind of thing going on but I think in terms of combination play and you know using the width and having players play to their strengths offensively I think he's great he, he did a fantastic job I thought at Dortmund he's a really confusing coach because at times it feels like he's really conservative and at times it feels like he's not anywhere near conservative enough 
in terms of trying to squeeze as many attacking players on the pitch as possible. So his Dortmund was excitingly for the first time in in years that we'd seen Michael Royce play as a number ten consistently. I think Dortmund were great for a long time playing Royce and Goetze as as a front two. It's sort of the a trademark of Favre from his time at Gladbach that he'd play a four four two without any strikers with with two sort of attacking midfielders really playing up front. The likes of Raphael and, and Max Kruse back then and then Royce for a couple of years under Favre at Gladbach as well. And then obviously when he was took over at Dortmund he was there as captain now. So him and Goetze, him and Paco Alcasa struck up really great relationships and really really exciting to watch him what he does on the flanks I think the interchanges where there's obviously coached patterns of overlaps or underlaps but it feels like it's coached only to the extent that it allows the players to still be instinctive and when you have Rafael Guerrero and Jaden Sancho on one flank you obviously don't need to tell them what to do like they will find solutions just through sheer ability and intuition. So I think, you know, playing into things like that was really, really interesting. The dressing room, I think, liked Favre the man, but didn't always like the football they were playing on the pitch. And and Matt Hummels would frequently complain in press conferences or or in interviews, post-game interviews after Dortmund hadn't won, saying that there was nowhere enough intensity against the ball and that, that Dortmund would sit off too much. I think for Favre, that's a tool to unleash his players on the break. I think to sit off and have, you know, obviously you do want to win the ball higher up the pitch and and on the counter-attack, you've only got maybe 20 or 30 yards until the goal. I don't think Lucien Favre sees counter-attacks quite the same way as the rest of us. I think he sees counter-attacks as most effective when you have fast players who are fantastic dribblers and make good decisions in those sort of high pressure moments and you can flood forward with just three or four of those players and their movement drags defenders away and creates space for others when you have half a pitch to play in I think he thinks that the possibilities there are way more enticing than maybe having a counter-attack in the Klopp sense where you win the ball on the edge of the opposition box and you only have to move five yards and you've got a great chance to score so there is something inherently exciting about that watching that football, especially when you have the likes of Royce and Goetze and Sancho and, and Haaland at the end of Favre's reign, playing and delivering those counter-attacks. The problem for Dortmund and for, I think, any dominant side is that in order to launch those counter-attacks, you need to be defending on the edge of your own box. And that's not something the top teams... You, you don't see many top teams willingly defend in their own half as consistently as you saw Favre's Dortmund do it. And then obviously when they came up against other good sides, you know, Tottenham in the Champions League a couple of times and Bayern obviously in the league every season, it meant that those counter-attacks were maybe the only chance Dortmund would get in a game to break a team down. So not pressing high was, I think, a tool for Favre. And I think it was a problem for Favre as well. So he's fantastic at developing players. I think he is an exceptional coach. I think it's a real shame that he's left Dortmund and, and not we've not seen him coach anywhere else since as well in, in like the 18 months now that have passed. But I don't think for a team that wants to choose that Klopp thing of dragging teams down to your level, which is what Dortmund are going to have to do if they're ever going to win the Bundesliga and if they're ever going to win the Champions League or, or go far, sorry, in the Champions League again, they're going to have to drag teams more talented than them down to their level and make life hard for them. And a Favre team was just never built to do that. I suppose the frustration of the Favre era was that when it eventually did come to an end, it didn't seem as though there had been any sort of succession planning whatsoever. So obviously you end up with Edin Terzic and he covers for the the rest of the season. And weirdly, there's a case to be made that Terzic was the most successful manager of the post-Clock Tuchel era. He got qualification to the Champions League with a really nice seven-game win streak at the end of the season and won the DFB Pokal as well. But even tactically, it just felt as though there was something about him that brought out the best of that group of players. So yeah, I'm just interested in your thoughts on what that was. I think he went to basics, really. I think he looked at the squad that he had and played to the strengths of the players that he had, you know, which for Dortmund, or should I say, maybe put them out in a way that would mask their weaknesses a little bit better. So instead of this calm possession play for Terzic, really, it was like, well, you have Michael Royce and Jaden Sancho and Erling Haaland, so unleash them. And 
instead of playing the three of them and maybe Torgan Hazard or someone else on on an opposite flank from Sancho, well, how about we play those three and play with a much more compact midfield? And, you know, he sort of switched from Favre by the end was playing a back three quite often instead of a 4-2-3-1. But even in a back three, and, and actually, to be fair to, to Julian Brandt, some of his best football came in a, in a bit of a double pivot in front of a back three. But to think that Julian Brandt, you could get away with playing Julian Brandt in a double pivot for that long is pretty fanciful, I think. So that was Favre trying to get all the talented players on the pitch, whether or not the role suited them and whatever it meant for the team. It was at some point about getting more and more of the talented players on the pitch as possible and not thinking how they would necessarily gel together. I think Terzic just really stripped it back. He was like, right, we've got Sancho Haaland, Royce, that's a front three. So we put a midfield three in there that's just going to work hard and let them three get on with their job. So you know, Witzel, Dahoud and, and Bellingham, who in their own right are great players, or, or Thomas Delaney as well, who would add a bit more aggression in midfield too. Not that those midfielders were bad, but I think Terzic really focused on letting the incredibly talented front three do their thing. And we probably saw Jane Sancho's best Dortmund form under Terzic with all of that freedom he was given and, and the license to really run games as soon as Dortmund got into the final third. And interested what you think that teaches us about what Dortmund should be trying to do at all. I think that when you have more talented players than the opposition, <laughs> <laughs> you need to make sure you don't shoot yourself in the foot. And I think that's something that Dortmund could definitely, definitely, definitely learn from because it feels like Dortmund don't often get beaten, but but quite often just end up beating themselves. And then this brings us to the present day. So this season feels very much like the downward arc of the RB style coaches, the Red Bull style coaches. So we've already seen this season Jesse Marsh's failure at Leipzig, although that might be a little bit unkind given that I don't think necessarily there's a huge amount of difference between him and Tedesco other than the results have obviously been better for the latter. But Marco Rosa's time at Dortmund seems to be fairly uninspiring as well. We had quite a few questions from our patrons about this. So a question from Bruno Collich, who said, how healthy is it for the league to employ so many Red Bull coaches who all play a similar way? And then a question from Dan Holdsworth, who said, do you think the wider German tactical trend that has emerged over the last 20 years or so of quite direct transitional counter-pressing football is a major factor in the total domination for Bayern? Is it a style that is too easy for a well-budgeted dominant side like Bayern to counter? Um, So I guess my question has to be, do you think that Dortmund plumped on the wrong tactical trend for the league with Marco Rosa. I would like to hold off on answering that question for another 12 months because I do think this sort of mishmash of a Dortmund side, I think if you're going to play that football and play it successfully, then like Dortmund have not had the players physically capable of doing it, physically and dare I say mentally willing or, or capable as well. So, you know, to play, to use that term, like the full throttle football, but to do it with... Guerrero at left back, who is essentially a reimagined number 10, at least in his own mind, and you know, doesn't really offer verticality and, and certainly doesn't offer pace. And he's never going to physically dominate his, his opponent. You know, to have him to have a, a slow, he was always slow, but incredibly slow now. Matt Tomals at centre back. Axel Witzel, his physical decline over the last two years has been enormous as well. And he had a really serious injury last year, to be fair. And he'll leave the club this summer. So I think next year you will have a new look Dortmund midfield. The number of players as well going forward, given that Sancho was sold last summer, isn't like we've seen this year in the Premier League. Sancho is is rapid with his feet and his brain, but he's not going to beat players very often with just outright raw speed. I think that football requires players like that. I think it requires like direct one-on-one players who add verticality and and not just, you know, going forward but defensively as well. They've got to win their duels. And you know, you've seen Hummels. Hummels was, you know, 10 years ago a defender who would go a whole season without getting booked and now gets six or seven yellow cards a year because he he knows he can't win a race anymore. So I think next year, you know, Dortmund have already signed Nicolas Sula and, and Nico Schlotterbeck to be their two man mountains centre halves. I don't think that's an accident. And I think we'll see a few more signings before the season starts. And I would be very interested to see how this football does with those new signings next summer. So or during the summer. So next season will be a really interesting one. And I think if if they do 
revamp the squad a little bit and move more in that direction and then they have a squad that can play that football then we can really assess whether or not Marco Rosa is is the right man to continue for the club or not generally in the Bundesliga I don't know if it's an issue for the league in terms of the quality of the league but I think as a spectacle it's it's really sad that we have all of these RB trained coaches if you like Marco Rosa is obviously another one Julian Nagelsmann Bo Svensson who's done a fantastic job at Mainz but I think to have a complete lack of diversity in the philosophies is is a real shame and I do think it hurts the league at least visually like if you threw in a couple of Diego Simeone's and a Graham Potter I think the Bundesliga would be much much more interesting overnight so I don't think this football is necessarily the issue. I think you see FC Köln this season play something akin to this football, even if it's from Stefan Baumgart, who hasn't come through that that same ARB school. Although the you know the DFB themselves, I think, have in, in terms of then coaching badge classes, have basically turned this into the German football, which obviously exacerbates the issue but Stefan Baumgart's had huge success this season with FC Köln playing high pressing really direct football two strikers loads of crossing they're probably in my opinion the most fun team to watch in the league also because of the issues that they have defensively because of such a high intensity all-out attack approach but it's been effective I think the the big issue yeah is that players in Germany don't develop and teams in Germany don't develop when they then go into Europe because they're not used to playing against different styles of football and a Graham Potter or two Graham Potters and, and a couple of Diego Simeones which I guess <laughs> Urs Fischer at Union Berlin could maybe be considered something like a Diego Simeone in Germany I think they would do the league and all of the teams a world of good I think we would see a hell of a lot of player development and I think we'd see when then Dortmund or, or anyone else has to play in Europe we'd see a team with more tools to take on teams who have different approaches and go at things in a bit of a different way let's talk just a little bit about what you've made of Dortmund this season because it hasn't been entirely clear to me why it hasn't worked so well for them at all so as someone who's watched a lot of Dortmund this season what's your take on Marco Rosa and I suppose by extension René Maric. I find it very hard to know as a fan or as anyone watching I think it's very hard to know what Dortmund want to do and I always think that's a massive concern for any football team. I think there's a few games where you get glimpses I have sympathy because of injuries. Rosa, his first season at Gladbach when he got them into the Champions League played a diamond almost the whole season and it looked like he was going to do the same at Dortmund this year with, you know, they obviously signed Daniel Marlon to play up alongside Erling Haaland and with Marco Royce behind them. And it, it looked and felt a lot like that first season he had at Gladbach. And it was a diamond that he used uh, at Salzburg as well when he was there. And then Giovanni Reina got injured and it felt like the plans to have a diamond disappeared with that. Reina had played as, as one of the central midfielders in the diamond for all of preseason. And I have a bit of sympathy there. And then I just think the yeah, this squad building and this accumulation of players who don't fit one particular way of playing. I think when you play a diamond and you need all that width to come from somewhere, then you're looking for a, a box-to-box style up and down left back. And, and Rafael Guerrero is a left back who probably has more touches of a ball in a football game than any other left back on the planet. He likes to drift inside, you know, Jao Cancelo style or whatever and play in that number 10 space and play quick combinations with teammates around the edge of the box. It's sort of like those those classic Arsene Wenger goals that people point to. Jack Wilshere and Olivier Giroud just flicking it back and forth between each other. Like when I close my eyes and think of Rafael Guerrero, that's what I see him doing on the edge of the area. And to play the style of football that Rosa wants to play with that as your only real left-back option is a problem. And I think, yeah, as I say, Axel Witzel, Julian Brandt in midfield. I think Dortmund have not had the players this season to play the style of football that they want to play and that Marco Rosa wants to play. And then I think he has compromised on his football because he's accepted that he hasn't had the players to carry it out. So... 
I don't really know. I think a little bit of nobody's to blame and a little bit of everybody's to blame for this Dortmund season, which has been really disappointing. I know they're going to finish second, but to go out to Rangers and St. Pauli in the, the two cup competitions, to go out to Rangers having already gone out the Champions League, putting up no signs of a fight against the likes of Sporting and Ajax was a real, real disappointment. I think we can talk all day about Bayern having financial superiority, but there's no way Dortmund should. I think Ajax, like Ajax are the model. You know, you're talking about a club that focuses on youth development, doesn't spend loads of money on transfers and gets to the knockout stages of the Champions League every single season and looks like they could go far in the Champions League most years. Like that has to be the model for Dortmund, I think, to develop players, develop players from their own academy or sign players when they're 16, 17, 18, 19 years old and sell them for huge profits as they have been doing. But Ajax proved you can do it and have a real sense of identity, a real style of football. And that's something that Dortmund just have not had over the past few years. And I think you can you can only really judge the work the coach has done when the squad makes sense. And I don't think it's a squad that makes sense for all the reasons that we've talked about, the chopping and changing of manager and the, the lack of a clear identity post-Klopp. And now after... I mean, like I say, they finished second this season, but with two enormous cup disappointments. I think this is sort of the the year that Dortmund have realised all of that to be true. And I think that they realised it when they got rid of Favre. I think he was sacked, but Terzic came in as interim because they always knew Marco Rosa was going to be the, the manager this season. And I think trying to appoint Rosa was already Dortmund trying to correct the mistakes of the last few years. And it's just a process that's going to take a couple of years before we can say whether or not it's paid off. Well, let's move to the overarching topic of the episode that we talked about right at the beginning. So I'll ask you the question, what impact do you think the inequality of the league has had on Dortmund? And by that, I mean, what impact do you think it has for Dortmund that they are expected to challenge for the title against Bayern, despite the fact that, as you've said, the financial disparity is so great that that's just unlikely. How do you think that's negatively affected Dortmund in the last couple of decades? I think it's added a pressure to the club that is incredibly unhelpful. If Leipzig had nicked a title and Leverkusen had nicked a title along the way, then there's a pressure on Dortmund now that wouldn't have existed. But everybody looks to Dortmund as the team that could end Bayern's dominance, which, you know, all neutrals or all non-Bayern fans, I guess, are all very interested and invested in that happening. So I think you get a situation where Dortmund almost, it feels like since Tuchel left, Every year has been a bit of a rebuild and it feels like Dortmund have never been able to fully commit to rebuilding in case Bayern Munich had a bad year because there's this expectation that, well, if Bayern only gets 75 or 76 points, then that's the door opening and Dortmund can't afford to not be there ready to take advantage. Obviously, it just doesn't work like that. Every football club and and Bayern themselves, every team after a a long-lasting manager, or after a couple of really poor years, every team and every club needs to go through rebuild. And then a few years later, they'll have to go through a new one. And Dortmund have not afforded themselves that luxury because I think they've felt the pressure to always be there or thereabouts just in case Bayern slip up. Yes, I guess the word that springs to my mind is continuity. It hasn't felt like for the last decade or so, at least since Klopp, there's not been that continuity there. And so it's felt as though in those seasons where Bayern have slipped up, and that has happened, like Niko Kovac exists. But in those moments, (laughs) it feels as though Dortmund haven't been in the right place, the best place to be able to pick up on that kind of slip up. You've mentioned already that Ajax is the club who are the model for this. Um, they have an approach which really works well. I'm interested in what you think the tactical approach should be within that model. How do you see that tactical approach? How do you think Dortmund should consider themselves tactically? And do you think that a continuity of tactics would actually benefit them in the long run? It's that problem, obviously, of tactics being one thing and having the players who can actually carry them out being another. So it's it's not as easy as saying, right, let's go and try and play like Liverpool. Because if you don't have a Mohamed Salah and a Trent Alexander-Arnold and a Thiago and a Fabinho, then how the hell do you play anything like Liverpool can? So I think Dortmund's biggest problem is that Lucien Favre was 80% the right coach when I said that he made sure pretty much week in, week out, Dortmund beat the teams they were better than. That's something that Peter Bosch didn't do, for example. And you've seen like a bunch of results this season at Lyon as well, where it, it feels like history repeating itself, where because of the approach not quite being right, 
there's always a chance for a team much less talented than Dortmund beating them when he was in charge. Dortmund can't afford that because Dortmund have to pick up all of those points in order to keep pace with Bayern. But then they also need that intense pressing, you know, make life hard for the other team kind of style that they're going to need to win the direct contest against Bayern to make sure they actually get over the line and to make sure, you know, when they play in a Champions League group stage with Real Madrid or Barcelona, that they can compete with them or if they meet those teams in the in the last 16 Champions League. And that's something that Klopp himself, I think, struggled with by the end. It was one or the other. Dortmund got all the way to the cup final in Klopp's final season, knocking Bayern out of the Bundesliga, even though his style of football wasn't working against most Bundesliga teams anymore. So I find that Dortmund are in this awkward, awkward halfway house where they finish second and that's not really considered an achievement. But in order to finish second, they have to beat all the teams outside the top two. But then in order to win the league, they need a style. Or let's say they beat all the teams that are outside the top six, home and away, because they develop a style that when you have the better players on the pitch can help you win football games. But then in order to win the league, Dortmund have to go to Leverkusen and go to Leipzig and go to Munich and get results in those places. I think to develop a team and a tactic and an identity an approach that can deliver both consistently is just, you know, you're looking for a lottery ticket, really. So I think Dortmund have to keep doing what they've tried to do and what they've done unsuccessfully a lot of the time. I think the the real issue for me has been the awful, awful buys in the transfer market. There's buys that don't make sense in terms of cohesion, like they just don't fit. And then there are lazy, lazy transfers. And I'm thinking of someone like... Nico Schultz for like 20 odd million because he's had a good year at Hoffenheim without taking into account that every fullback that plays under Julian Nagelsmann looks like Roberto Carlos <laughs> and and that, that was the case at Hoffenheim every season he was there and, and Dortmund have made the same mistake in, in consecutive years because they signed Jeremy Toljan two years before because he'd look fantastic playing as a fullback under Julian Nagelsmann as if they <laughs> they didn't figure out that there was some kind of trick there to whatever Nagelsmann <laughs> was doing and we saw it last year at uh, RB Leipzig with Angelino as well turning into this monster left wing back and, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a good player, but it's not something that he's managed to back up again this season. So I think that has been an issue, like lazy transfers. And then Dortmund have been fantastic in finding the players that are coming out of youth teams. And, you know, there, there are a few, again, now there's a couple from PSG. Jane Sancho, obviously, coming from City. And, and Jamie Bynard-Gittens has arrived from City as well. And he'll be a part of the first team next season after a couple of years in the youth sides. I think that's one part of it. The other part, like targeting young players that not everybody knows about is also hard. Like everybody knows about Jude Bellingham and Erling Haaland. Dortmund just managed to convince them that they should join Dortmund. But Dortmund have also made a habit of the last few years. I mean, Nico Schlotterbeck now joining from SC Freiburg. If Dortmund had tried to sign him a year ago or two years ago, they'd have saved themselves a hell of a lot of money. A player that sticks out to me as a player that could definitely play for Dortmund is Kouadio Kone, uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, who's a fantastic midfielder. But why are Dortmund no longer finding these players when they're playing in France and they're waiting until they've had one great year in the Bundesliga and then obviously their value is four or five times the amount? And, you know, Gladbach are, are a great example of a club that have used France brilliantly in particular to sign a bunch of players. And uh, Marcus Turam and Alessandro Player stick out as well, players who I think could have been good players for Dortmund. But by the time they arrive and they have a good year in the Bundesliga, the the value shoots up. You know, David Raum, Dortmund are being linked with now at left-back after a really great year playing left-wing-back again for Hoffenheim, but this time not under Julian Nagelsmann. David Raum cost, I think, three million from Kreuterfurt when Hoffenheim signed him last summer. They had an agreement a few months before last season ended and he joined in the summer. So these are the deals. Why have Dortmund not seen a guy playing in Germany and playing for the Germany under-21s really well at left wing back, and then decided a year later they need a left wing back when he's going to cost thirty million instead of three million. I think that's the key. You know, we can talk about the Bayern's financial gap, but what that really means is that Dortmund have to use their money smarter, and to use the money smarter, they have to go for much less obvious picks and assemble a group of players that fit that one style of play which they want to pursue. Which I think is this this Marco Rosa full sort of pressing style. 
Well, Lewis, I could have spoken to you for a lot longer than this, but I should draw our time to a close. Before we finish, I should just say that next week we will be talking to Alex Stewart about Sean Dyche and the concept of quote-unquote negative tactics, whether or not we should even talk about such a thing as negative tactics if they work. So do look out for that. Lewis, what is the best way for my listeners to catch the stuff you're putting out? You can find me on Twitter at LG Ambrose, where I will undoubtedly keep sharing whatever I write. And you can follow my Bundesliga newsletter at fußballinenglish.substack.com. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie. If you like our artwork, then do check out Frankie Mitchell's portfolio over on her Twitter account at MadeByFrankie. Her work is incredible and she's often available for commissions, so do check that out. And then this music, written and recorded by my good friend Joe Hill and his North Ark Septet. You can find out more about them and listen to the music at www.joehillmusic.bandcamp.com. See you next week.